Yeah. Maximal quality on. Are we recording? We are. Boom. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I am an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? We're in uh, 2024 now. Last pod was in 2023. We're in a new year. We got uh, yeah, a whole new, new year, set Marcus. of... Yeah, Happy New Year. What, what's what's your what's your sort of uh, deadline on uh, the Happy New Year? Like when do you, when do you cut it off? Uh, we're probably right at that point, you know, where it's getting. I, I say, yeah. I mean, for me, it's sort of like you know, I we we have a Christmas tree in our house, or we did. It's like when you get rid of the Christmas tree, like typically that's like around now, like a week, kind of after like January first. That to me is kind of like the right moment. It's like the holidays are over, Happy New Year. I I have experienced people uh, say Happy New Year like well into like February and March. Well, that's unacceptable. I, I, I find that I find that off putting. Well, it's also like the first time I've seen you since the New Year, and so there's a that's little true. bit of that. Like you know, yeah. we last saw each well, other. I'll in say December. Happy New Year. I'll say Happy New Year to you. Okay, good. Yeah. Do you are you a, a New Year's resolution kind of person? Not really. I mean, I I actually do kind of like the idea of New Year's resolutions, although I don't really set them for myself. Like, I, there's, there's something nice about kind of like a a fresh start, kind of looking back and like you know thinking about the things that you did in the prior year or, or more that you know you, you don't feel are 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 great. You know, behaviors you want to change, habits you want to break, new habits you want to build. Uh, but I don't actually do them myself. Uh, and and I think partly it's just because like I feel like you could. You can or should make a New Year's resolution like whenever you want. You know, like if it's July and you feel like, hey, you know, I'm having, I'm, I'm, I smoke too much, I drink too much, I don't exercise enough, or whatever. Well, just do a New Year's resolution in July and fix that behavior. You know, so I don't, I don't really love the idea that you wait around till like January first to do something. But yeah, I like the idea of like sort of taking stock and thinking like, okay, like here are the things that I'm are not so great that can be improved, either health, you know, mental health, physical health, relationships, family, whatever. You know, I, I think that's good. How about yourself? What are your newest resolutions? You know, I'm not really, I, I've never been good at resolutions and I, I don't really. Not a big resolutions guy? I, I agree that like, I don't understand the significance of the new year and the, in the resolution. And so I, I'm like, well, why bother with a resolution now? But that means I never change anything about my life, right? Like I never improve in any way. And so maybe it would be good if I adopted something. Another podcast I listened to, um, uh, the Cortex podcast, talks about this idea of a yearly theme. Maybe I'll put a link in the show notes to this, which is like a softer version of a resolution. So resolutions are bound to fail. I mean, they nearly always do, right? And then it makes you feel bad about yourself. You spent two weeks exercising and then you're like, well, you took a week off. Now your resolution is shot and you right. uh, you feel bad. And so one kind of way around that. And then you're like, well, why bother now um, exercising in the future? My resolution is done. So one way around that is thinking about it in terms of a general idea that will guide your decision-making in the new year. So mm. your idea could be improving your health or achieving better work-life balance or, you know, trying to live in the present or whatever it is that your, your, res your, your resolution would have been, turn that just into a theme. And then it kind of lingers in the background as like, well, I'm deciding what to do right now. I don't remember my theme. Maybe I'll do something a little bit better for my health then than I would have otherwise. So that, I thought that was a nice idea. That seems like a, yeah, a much more sort of mature and healthy way of thinking about a resolution. Like, modest changes to be... And also, I, I, I would imagine, although I'm not positive about this, but I would imagine, like, in the literature, like, that this, this type of stuff is probably more likely to succeed, right? It's like, if you try to make, like, just minor adjustments to your, you know, bad behaviors over time, uh, or not bad behaviors, but things you want to change about yourself... Those are those are probably, I'm guessing, more likely to be successful than these like cold turkey approaches uh, to to you know like New Year's resolutions where you like completely try to change your behavior. That seems like a, a something that's not gonna not gonna work. Well, because it is the new year, it is the season of lists, and so we've been passing back and forth the, the two of us some folks who have kind of drawn up lists of the top global risks for 2024, the things we should, I guess we should be most freaked out about, most worried about when it comes to international issues. And I thought we could try our hand at this. I don't think any of these are particularly um, compelling, right? But it's a good, it's a chance for us to take a breath, look at what we think might be dangerous in the year ahead and talk about those. I don't know how you want to do this. I don't think we necessarily need to rank these. We can just kind of talk about the, the top things that are on our mind. Yeah. I think there's a clear number one, though. Okay, well, this, this maybe this is interesting. We don't have to debate necessarily one to ten, but, like, yeah, if I disagree that this is your clear number one, then we can have a conversation about it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, my clear number one in terms of it's a, an issue with its effect on international security generally. Can I can I can I predict what you're going to say? Please. <laughs> you're a big prediction guy, right? Yeah, well, that but I think we sh- we probably agree on this. So, but go ahead. Well, I, this would be very interesting. Um I think you're going to say the United States and the the political situation in the United States. Yeah, the upcoming election. Okay, good. All right, there we go. All For right. sure. Is We're that not your page. number one issue? No, too? it would be my. It'd be my number one. Yeah. Okay. So that was that was exciting. Because well, because it was slightly unfair <laughs> though, because it like it touches on so many other like top risks. So it's like a meta risk. Exactly. Because all of the other ones, you can't you can't think clearly about any right. of the other things that are going on in the world exactly. without considering the effect of the upcoming U.S. election or like, the general political issues in in the U.S. Because so many of the players involved in these other issues are just watching what's going on in the United States and and what happens in in November when the election is going to shape their response. And so for some of the actors out there, they're going to be in a holding pattern, hoping for a particular outcome in, in the U.S. election. And I mean, we can talk about this, but I think the the possibility of another Donald Trump presidency is the biggest issue in international security because the U.S. is still the biggest player in international security. And to the extent that U.S. policy is going to change if there is a new president, then that has just dramatic effects on what everything else is going on in the world. What's your, your take on this? Do you agree? I do, but it's it's kind of interesting, right? I mean, like, there, there are so many... Um, sort of schools of thought of international relations that sort of downplay the role of, of individuals, right? Sure. I mean, this is this is uh, one of the first things you learn in like an introduction to international politics class is something along the lines of like states are the actors that matter. You know, uh, states are, are rational most of the time. They they you know make decisions by going through cost benefit analyses and this and that. And the consequence of that is that. You know, any sort of one individual really doesn't doesn't matter all that much, right? Because states are making, you know, more or less rational decisions more or less of the time. And so therefore, like people, presidents kind of come and go. And there is, to be fair to the, the people that believe this, like large swaths of, of, of evidence to suggest this, right? I mean, there are... Um, First of all, observational studies that have looked at like leadership turnover and tried to figure out like exactly kind of what changes, you know, leader to leader. It turns out, depending on the, the specific variable that you're interested in, sometimes like things, you know, can can change. But for the most part, like foreign policy, like kind of remains the same over time with leadership turnover. Um, you can also look at things like, you know, what what people said in pre-presidential uh, uh, campaigning and what they ended up doing as president. A lot of people make the argument that in the United States anyway, people talk a good ball game when they're sort of campaigning and they're going to change this and that. And then when they become president, you know, people in the military sit you down and they say, okay, I know you said all those things, but here's why we're not, not going to do any of them. And so you just kind of continue the status quo, all kinds of, of things like that. But I think here is is a very nice example of what um, another group of international relations scholars have been arguing for a very long time, which is individuals do matter. Uh, and, and not all all individuals all of the time, but every once in a while, an individual comes along uh, who has, for whatever reason, a lot of sort of causal autonomy uh, and is able to just make significant changes to the international system literally kind of by themselves. And I think Donald Trump is one of these people. Um, and it's not just because of him as a, as a person necessarily. It's also kind of like what he represents and the people who support him and the views that they have and, and, and so on. But the idea that with with a turnover in November into into January 2025, over the course of a month and a half or two months, that we could see a fundamental sea change. And I think this is this might be a little bit traumatic, but I think a lot of people would say that no, this is probably right. Fundamental sort of sea change in US foreign policy based on one person changing, the President of the United States. That's that's profound for for people that would make the argument that individuals don't matter. And it's profound for people that do, because it's yet another example of somebody who, you know, just has this this great sort of, you know, ability to, to make change, you know, kind of all by them by themselves. So I think it's interesting at an IR theory level uh, that we're, we're having this conversation, given that so much of our theory would say that, like, no, this like just shouldn't shouldn't actually matter at all. Yeah, well, and I'm I'm one of those people, I think, who who is a strong <laughs> proponent of a right. kind of more rationalist view of international relations where individuals are not the central unit of analysis for understanding what's going on in the world. But even I have to admit <laughs> that this situation is one of those right. where right. it really does seem to matter quite a lot. And I mean, yeah. it's not just an individual story, right? It's a it's a 
domestic political story because it's about, you know, what kind of coalition can come together to support a particular president, right? So it's not sure. it's not just Donald Trump. It's it's the folks who support him as you as you mentioned, but he's also I think different from previous Republican candidates for president in the the extent to which he diverges from the I don't know, kind of general foreign policy establishment understanding of U.S. interests in the world, particularly in terms of his beliefs about U.S. allies um, that, you know, it, it stands for uh, organizations like NATO um, and working with other countries in the world. And so I think those particular viewpoints, which are so different from kind of the previous Republican establishment views, make this much more of a case where a Donald Trump election represents a very dramatic turn in U.S. foreign policy to the extent which we didn't really understand going in to 2016 um, what that what that shift would be like. I mean, I think before that, there was a lot of talk about this and how Trump might be different than previous administrations. But things like talking about, you know, to getting out of NATO and, and, and buying Greenland and things like this that, that we, we kind of hadn't, hadn't anticipated, right, how, how different it would be. And this time around, we understand how different the uh, Trump administration would be from the current administration's foreign policy. I think that's right, Jeff. Uh, and I also think this time is a little bit different from 2016 for another reason, which is that it's the second go around, right? So, so in 2016, there was this argument out there that, you know, for people that were nervous about Trump becoming president, like, what is he going to do? Is he got the nuclear codes and this and that? People said, don't worry, relax. You know, uh, U.S. presidents kind of get socialized very quickly into the office and the office of the presidency is a kind of restrained, strained one. And, you know, the Joint Chiefs will sit down, you know, Trump and explain where our alliances are and our commitments and this and that. And it turns out that over over the course of the four years, we saw him sort of maintain some of the kind of things that oh, we yeah. would expect from the president. It's not like he walked into the, the, the White House and said, I'm, you know, tearing up every single agreement and we're, you know, none of our allies matter anymore. But he certainly in some areas either pushed the boundaries or did things like the Paris, you know, climate accords and got us out of, of things like that. Right. I think this time around, the sort of, you know, the, the, the president who was president then loses and then becomes president again, the sort of Grover Cleveland uh, model, is more dangerous because he's the, the idea of socialization, I think, doesn't exist at all, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, he's, he has nothing to lose in the sense that he's not going to be re running for re-election uh, again, so he can kind of do whatever he wants and not worry so much about the domestic politics of it. Um, but also, I think... A president who wants to have radical changes to U.S. foreign policy, which I believe that he does if he was if he was elected and kind of knows the ropes based on like what what like worked and what didn't work during the first term, I think is going to be much more capable in getting some of those uh, changes through. In other words, I think one of the things that might have constrained Trump uh, for the first the, in the first uh, administration was simply just like a sort of lack of knowledge, lack of experience. A lot of people pointed out like he didn't hire the best people. He, the, the people he did hire didn't know what they were doing and, and this and that. I think this time around, he's going to be much more kind of focused, alert, experienced and by knowing the ropes and how things work in Washington, able, I think, to do more uh, to get his policy agenda through than he did the, the first time. So I, I agree with everything you said. And I think that, that the if you view this as a danger, the danger is amplified precisely because it's the second go around. And he had the experience of the first term to, to sort of help him kind of figure out how to how to move things forward. And the effect here isn't importantly, I think it's not just whether Trump wins or loses, right? It, it's not just the outcome of the of the election; it's the fact of the election that is going to generate some international security decision making changes by other parties in the world who are watching this election closely. So we can maybe move to another item that I'm sure is on everybody's list: the Russia Ukraine conflict. I'd probably put this maybe like a number two, but you know we could we could debate that. I think that's right. But, but both parties here, Russia and Ukraine, are, you know, going to be watching closely because the policy that they adopt going forward or their kind of prospects in this conflict are heavily impacted by who wins the U.S. election. And because of that, they will be kind of making decisions accordingly, right? So that Vladimir Putin, for example, if he believes Trump is going to win the election, doesn't have any incentive to make a deal now to end the conflict because he can anticipate more favorable terms once a Trump administration is in power and effectively cuts off all support to Ukraine, which I think most analysts think is what would happen in a, in a Trump administration. And from 
Ukraine's perspective, given the possibility of a Trump presidency down the line, um, and, you know, we can already see the effects of political polarization in the United States taking away aid that the Biden administration wants to give to Ukraine. Given all of that, Ukraine has an incentive to behave in a much riskier way and try to regain territory, bring the conflict, if not to an end, solidify their position such that if there were a change of administration, they would be in a little bit better position to get a peace that would be favorable to them. So I think that this impending election impacts the decision-making of these actors for 2024, not just 2025, when there's a new administration in power, potentially. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I mean, I think we haven't talked about the, the sort of situation in Ukraine uh, all that specifically in the last couple of pods, but it's 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 not good. It's not great, no. right? I mean, um, the support from the United States uh, for Ukraine has kind of ebbed and flowed. I think that's definitely affected them. The European support has been a little bit better, but it's not been fantastic. You know, it's sort of like they're not getting the things that they need fundamentally, right? And so they've right. and they've seen on the battlefield that this is leading uh, to losses. Ukraine is desperate, I think, for more artillery, more troops, more everything in order to, to be able to continue to withstand uh, the assault. And I think you're right. If they're looking ahead uh, this year, um, you know, if 2024 is sort of like a make or break year for this this conflict, uh, they're going to be in a situation where Ukraine is taking more risks is going to be something that's going to be appealing to them. Right. And there's lots of different reasons for that. One is the sort of you know psychological uh, prospect theory stuff that we've talked about before. When you're in these kind of domains of losses, you take more risks to get back what you've lost. I think that's part of it. But I also think part of it is just like this rationalist sort of understanding that if the, the presidency changes in, in 2025, we're going to get we're going to get nothing. Right. So it's it's better to do what we can now to to get to get some gains. So we have a favorable or more favorable settlement if it comes to that, uh, knowing that what's lurking in the background, you know, 11 months from now or whatever it is, is potentially a complete game changer for this entire conflict. I think what that means on the ground might be things like taking more risks in Russia. You know, Ukraine yeah. is, is attacked Russian um, uh, very selectively, you know, sort of like targets in Russia. We might see that increasing. With targets being increased in Russia, I think that'll cause, you know, Russia to sort of double down on its attacks. And then, you know, you don't, you don't know what happens. You don't know if NATO then, you know, starts to, to potentially get drawn into the conflict more than they have, right? So the risk, I think, for, for the Russian-Ukraine conflict is, you know, sort of, it's about Ukraine's situation. It's fundamentally risk, the, the risk is, is for Ukraine and the future of it uh, with this added component of as it takes on more risk, you know, bringing in... Uh, Russia and and you know potentially NATO more into the conflict that that could get out of hand uh, quickly. So I, th I think that is the, the reason why we put this number two on our list. Yeah, I mean the potential for more systemic risk here from uh, an escalation of the war. I mean, it is is real, and it's something we haven't talked about in a little bit. This was the concern right at the beginning of the conflict, and then it kind of settled down a little bit to be this fight really just between Ukraine and Russia, and we were a little less concerned about the risk of NATO becoming involved on the ground or the risk to NATO troops or NATO assets. But the Biden administration has worked to kind of tamp down Ukraine's aggressiveness in terms of the Russian attacks on Russian soil and maybe even a little bit on Crimea, which we recognize as Ukrainian territory, but which has kind of been in Russian hands since 2014. And I think that pressure to kind of not escalate the war, you know, even though from Ukraine's perspective, there is no such thing really as escalation anymore. But right. from the U.S. perspective, there certainly is. So the U.S. has tried to tamp that down. But that went along with U.S. aid, right? And if, if U.S. aid is not coming to Ukraine, then I think the gloves may come off, right? There, there's not really a lot of incentive on Ukraine's part to hold back, not that they've been holding back a lot, but but perhaps they have. We, we don't really know the, the full story. And then that increases the risk that things escalate to the point where Russia feels like it needs to move nuclear forces around or make nuclear threats. And then NATO feels the need to stand up to those threats. And then we get a potential movement up the escalation ladder. That's something that I don't think is a huge risk right now, but it's not hard to imagine a set of events that led to more concern over the potential use of nuclear weapons in this conflict or the potential involvement of NATO in a deeper way that increased the risk of things spiraling out of control. What's next on your list, Marcus? Uh, I think we have to have number three be the Middle East. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't really see uh, 
another another one that would would come close. And I think, frankly, Russia, Ukraine, and, and the Middle East could probably be you know flip flopped uh, depending on on how you view these things. Um, and my sense is that you know this, the situation is is terrible at the moment. So in January of 2024, we're in a situation where um, you know Israel has stated that it's it's talking about sort of like. Uh, scaling down some of the operations of Gaza, which I think is a positive. But on a much less positive note, what we've seen over the past couple of weeks is more uh, sort of actors become kind of involved, right? So we had um, Israel killed a, a Hamas militant in Beirut, right? We had Hezbollah uh, have uh, rocket strikes, I think, in an Israeli uh, base. We had the United States killing uh, a militia commander in Baghdad. We had Iran-backed rebels in Yemen uh, trading fire with the U.S. Navy. You know, so what started as an operation in in Gaza uh, because of the the terrorist attacks that occurred um, and trying to eliminate Hamas has turned into, I think, what a lot of people have had feared would happen, sort of other actors uh, in the region being kind of drawn into the conflict. And, you know, some people have stated, like, this is Hamas's goal all along, right? They wanted to sort of create this bigger, you know, Middle Eastern uh, uh, war, get the United States out, you know, and, and, and try to sort of um, make it so that, that, you know, the United States would not back uh, Israel as, as much as it has. Maybe that's what the goal, the goal was. Maybe it wasn't. But we, we all kind of worried that what we'd start to see is, you know, Iran become more involved, Hezbollah, Lebanon, et cetera. And I think we're seeing indications that at least on one-off incidents, that's, that's happened. So for 2024, I think the real question is, is Israel, with the United States' support, able to find a sort of way to s- slow the war down, to sort of, you know, uh, remove uh, personnel, military personnel from Gaza, basically say that their their operation is complete and they did what they wanted to do and they have a governance strategy. I know the, the Israelis came out with this like sort of four-pronged approach for governing Gaza or the defense of Gaza moving forward. Like, does that does that work? Are they able to do that? Or alternately, are we in a situation where we see increasing sort of um, involvement of either non-state or, or state actors or state-backed actors um, using this as an opportunity to uh, do things that they've, you know, kind of either always wanted to do or find the opportunity that now is convenient to do the things that they wanted to do. And we see this kind of spill over into a broader, a broader conflict. It's uncertain right now, but I think in terms of like a, a thing about risk and risk assessment, it's, it's huge because no one wants to see a broader uh, Middle East conflict except maybe, you know, Iran and, and Hamas. And, and that's, that's looming still as a quite a, a strong possibility. Yeah, and I'll add to that, uh, which I I agree with all of that. I'll add the political uncertainty in Israel as as another potential risk factor here. Netanyahu is, I think, widely blamed for for the uh, Hamas attacks. Um, His political situation is tenuous. His political situation has been tenuous for like a decade now, right? And it's it's not clear what his political road to recovery is, whether he can maintain – leadership and what that means for Israeli kind of governance of this situation going forward is, I think, an open question. And this, too, ties in with the U.S. election, where the Netanyahu administration has kind of more links to a potential Trump administration than it does to a Biden administration. And that has some potential impacts on how Israel decides to push forward in this conflict, anticipating a potential change of government um, or at least the potential for a change of government um, next year. And and so all of this, everybody's kind of looking ahead and trying to think, well, what might this mean? In the meantime, the Houthis in Yemen are lobbing missiles at commercial vessels in the Red Sea. We have a multilateral coalition of of navies that are out there trying to defend them. The Biden administration has threatened retaliation if the Houthis continue this effort. Doing so risks upending the current ceasefire in Yemen, which we've fought for years to try to cement to put an end to the fighting there, the potential of the U.S. getting involved or this multinational group getting involved in you know military attacks on Houthi installations in Yemen means the potential resumption of that conflict. That has, of course, players involved from Saudi Arabia to Iran and UAE and that risks even further expanding this conflict. It's a huge mess. And I think the, the best course for, for everyone is putting an end to this conflict as quickly as possible um, and trying to keep a lid on it. And I, it's not clear to me that 
has any real prospect of happening. But there, the potential risk here is is pretty significant. Next on my list, you know, I think it's a pretty big drop off from there. So we have the the big three, the U.S. election, Russia, Ukraine and the Middle East. After that, you get to a little bit more abstract for me. And I would throw AI in as my next kind of global risk in terms of its role as an enabling technology for misinformation and also for military action. But I think the misinformation one is particularly ripe for exploitation in this a U.S. election year. Marcus, do you want to talk about this one? Do you have something that's better than mine that you want to hit first? Well, you know, I don't know if it's better than yours. I mean, AI, uh, I think it's one of these kind of looming threats that will be here for a long time. I mean, I, it's, it's hard for me to, uh, as somebody who, who thinks about sort of like misperception and accidents to not have North Korea continue to be in the, on the list. You know, it's we, we, we could have North Korea on the list probably every year going back <laughs> to several decades. But I just worry uh, that there'll be some type of mistake and there'll be some type of accident. And, and one of these um, missile tests will go in the wrong direction and, and there will be, um, you know, sort of a, a conflict that gets started uh, because of it. So I don't, I don't think I think this is a different type of risk in the sense that it, it relies sort of on something unforeseen kind of happening. Whereas the other ones we sort of can, we can kind of foresee what the problem would be here. It's just like a, the sort of unintentional escalation that's, that somehow uh, gets triggered, whether it's, you know, something akin to the Chinese spy balloon that we couldn't have predicted would ever be a thing, uh, but, but became a thing last year, something happening with, with North Korea, uh, South Korean relations, North Korea, Japan, uh, you know, China involvement, something along those lines yeah. that, that gets brings a sort of escalation, uh, particularly nuclear escalation to the to the forefront. That does concern me. So I think from a risk perspective, I would put that as my my number four. No, that's a good one. And I think the North Korea issue is interesting because I, I you know, I think U.S. attention and international attention on North Korea has kind of waned as we've had these other crises popping up, Russia, Ukraine and and the Middle East. And North Korea doesn't like doesn't like it when it's not the center of attention, right? It has a way of kind of drawing attention back to North Korea in terms of its, you know, what it's doing. And so it's not hard to see North Korea engage, or hard to envision North Korea engage in kind of a an increase in the tempo of its missile tests, maybe even nuclear tests. And we've seen very clearly its ramping up of its capabilities along these lines. Maybe more dangerous to me are the increasingly tight links between North Korea and Russia, Iran and Russia, and those players in China as kind of an anti-US-NATO coalition that is much more connected than it was even a year ago when we think about the aid of Iran and North Korea to Russia in its conflict in Ukraine, which, you know, when this conflict started, that wasn't something that was this kind of on the radar, but it wasn't something that was like an imminent threat. But now we have very clear evidence that North Korean missiles are being used by Russia in Ukraine. There's a really interesting investigative report that looked at the remains of a missile and kind of brought it back to North Korean technology. And so, you know, this is now our reality, right? That it's not the, these aren't independent players and um, all of them are kind of have interests that are antithetical to U.S. interests in the world. And that's a potential danger going forward. But coming back to AI, well, should we do China first? China's got to be on your list somewhere, right? You know, um, I thought long and hard about this, Jeff, and I do have China on my list, but it's kind of far down there. Right. Yeah. And and um, I'm not sure. I think any, any other year. Uh, I would have China slash Taiwan sort of like on my on my uh, higher up on my list, but I think there's so much else going on of that's that's negative in the world that it didn't crack the top five for me. Uh, it's it's on there, but it's not. I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to think about China, right? You can think about it from the international politics perspective, which is what we you know typically do. Think about Taiwan and what you know Russia Ukraine means for Taiwan. I'm a little tired of, of sort of talking and thinking about that, but it's true, it's still there. Like, you know, it's you know, it, it's it is an issue. China doesn't care if you're tired of talking about China. Right, China doesn't care. They yeah. they're actually are probably happy that that's the case, right? That's what they're they're banking on that people are just don't want to talk about it anymore. But also like China's I think domestic um economic situation. I mean, we talked about the migrant uh, sort of, you know, crisis. Uh, and then China might not view it as a crisis, but people leaving uh, China and trying to come to the United States, for example, uh, through Latin America. I do think that there's something to that, right? People have been saying that China's economy, you know, at long last is sort of like on the 
on the downswing. They're, they're not the, the sort of strong economic superpower that they have been in, in previously. That Xi Jinping's, you know, political support, you know, is maybe uh, uh, not as strong as, as some might believe. That there might be increased social unrest. I mean, the big thing that with China, everybody's been talking about for a long time, is this, this sort of disparity between, you know, sort of rural and urban areas in China and the question of, like, well, if the economy turns and, and people start to feel the effects of a negative economy, what type of social unrest uh, will will there be? And I think that's mainly sort of a domestic pull issue for China, but I could see some international, uh, you know, ramifications. Like if there are, you know, if, we, if it turns out that there are sort of like you know protests, and we start to see like a broader kind of you know grassroots uh, social unrest, that'll put pressure uh, on the CCP, and that might you know affect some of their decision making, um, whether to engage or not engage in sort of international conflict. So to me, China is an interesting one. It's 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 clearly you know China Taiwan uh, is always there. I, I view that as a little less uh, of a risk at the moment, but it may be, maybe I'm wrong. But actually now it's sort of the domestic side of China that I think is, is catching people's attention, including mine. And I think 2024 is going to be a very interesting year. I mean, if, if this downturn in the economy continues, um, you know, that'll, that'll do something to sort of China's you know, stature uh, in the international system. Again, not from a military perspective, but from an economic perspective, that I think will have some, some significant ramifications. Yeah, and China's domestic economic situation plays into the version of this that's that's really on my list, which is a kind of continuing economic conflict between the mm. U.S. and China. And here again, the well, here the impending election, I think maybe is less impactful because there isn't a whole lot of daylight between the Biden administration and the previous Trump administration in terms of its uh, willingness to place restrictions on trade with China. And from China's perspective, trying to improve its own domestic economic situation, those are kind of equally b bad outcomes. Um, doesn't mean China won't try to play in this election in some way, but I think the economic conflict with China doesn't show much sign of getting better as the U.S. places more and more restrictions, particularly on technology going to China, chip warfare, as we've talked about it in the past. And so whether that economic conflict spins out into broader security conflict in terms of worsening relations between China and the U.S. I, I'm fairly optimistic about because it seems like both of these leaders right now don't want that kind of a conflict, right? That they've, they've gotten the U.S.-China relationship to a place where it's not great, but it's stable. And it doesn't seem to be weakening further and she can come talk to folks in, in California and mention pandas and it's okay. And, and, and it's not, um, it's not the kind of thing that's spiraling out of control. Uh, hopefully that will continue to be the way both leaders perceive it. The wrinkle here is we have a, an election in Taiwan in a couple of weeks that I am not following closely, but anytime there's a, a Taiwan election, there's the potential for potential issues as China tries to reassert it's uh, it's policy. Beijing tries to reassert its policy uh, in the face of a new administration in Taiwan. And so it kind of remains to be seen whether that will throw a wrinkle um, in because one area that would exacerbate U.S. China ties would be uh, potential Chinese aggression toward Taiwan, not necessarily an invasion. Of course, that would be bad. But in terms of asserting its control and and pushing against Taiwan defenses more than it has been in recent months. So moving to kind of the, the broad, fuzzy portion of, the, of my list. Yeah, what do you got next? I have AI, AI on my bingo board here, and I'm worried about AI in lots of ways, but the main way in the context of this election year is in terms of facilitating misinformation, because these tools have now gotten to the point where they are pretty effective in targeting misinformation to particular groups, in deepfakes and in, in kind of mimicking videos and audio so that some segment of the U.S. population could be convinced that a particular candidate had said something that they didn't say. And the potential use of this technology for misinformation is pretty is pretty significant. And it's something that I know, you know, a lot of folks have eyes on, but it's not clear we have a good mechanism for addressing it. And the current political environment with regard to social media and regulation is that the U.S. government is very unlikely to play a strong role in pushing back on misinformation in social media networks the way it has in past election years. Some court cases uh, play into this, and the current ownership of Twitter plays into this, or X, I should say. X. Uh, X plays into this. So it, it, it's not clear that 
misinformation there's an there will be effective campaigns to stop misinformation and the media landscape here is does not give me a lot of confidence that this stuff won't kind of run rampant over the u.s electorate in this in this year yeah i agree with all that i i think the biggest concern for ai uh for me is the domestic side like what that's what that's going to mean from the election perspective but i also just think more generally like my my sense is that the technology is progressing so fast um, and, you know, in, in, in such a like, strong way that such a strong, I sound like Donald Trump, but in such a way that's like out, outpacing the, any sort of like attempt by governments to kind of have any clue as to what's going on. I just worry about the sort of like Donald Rumsfeld, like unknown, unknown unknowns where like, you know, what, what's, what is AI going to be able to do in six months, right. uh, that the U S government or the EU or any government, you know, just can't even see, it's not even on its radar, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like, but I, I just worry about the sort of like ability to AI just like so outpace our abilities to kind of keep it under control uh, to, to even like a, a relative, to, you know, relatively small degree that the unknown of what that means to, to me is, is a risk. Uh, it's not a risk that I can, it's like palpable, but it's, it's just certainly out there because it's AI has been so impressive. Or, you think about this last 12 months, what AI has done and think about, you know, what's, what's going to happen moving forward in the next 12 months. Scary work. Could be scary. The other issue under the broader AI category for me is AI-enabled military capabilities, which we are already seeing some software controlling drones that's kind of totally autonomous on its own choosing targets. And just hearkening back to the previous discussion about Ukraine, with a country that may be willing to take some more risks um, in this year, putting AI in control of more military capabilities may be something we see over the course of this year. And that's scary a little bit as a kind of breaking the seal on something that so far has not been something that, that most countries were willing to do. Yep. Um, but we may see an increase in that kind of thing. And, and that has implications for the future and how countries manage their command and control of their military operations and is a potentially scary thing that, that we need to address. And so far, I see no movement toward placing nuclear weapons under an AI control umbrella, but it's uh, something that certainly been talked about. And so we, you know, want to keep an eye on this story about to what extent is a computer in charge of choosing targets and pulling the trigger in the world, because that's something that we're going to, we're going to need to be grappling with. You know, Jeff, one uh, risk that we haven't talked about yet, but I would, I would imagine is on both of our lists, if not the top 10, then, you know, sort of like a, a honorable mention would be climate change, extreme weather. I mean, it just seems like um, over the last several years, we've noticed, you know, more and more kind of extreme weather events that have had really negative uh, ramifications for lots of places in the world, you know, biodiversity uh, issues, food scarcity. Um, and, and my sense is that this is this is a problem that's not going to get uh, better anytime soon. And, and I think the predictions by people that study this and, you know, meteorologists and climate change experts say, you know, expect more. What we saw in 2023, we're going to see more of this in, in 2024. And so from a kind of human security perspective and just a system kind of security perspective, it strikes me that uh, extreme weather is one of the things that, again, it's one of these ones where you never know exactly where it's going to strike and what it's going to do. Um, unfortunately, it, all, it often is the case that the poorest individuals in the world, the, the sort of least uh, sort of uh, equipped countries to deal with this type of thing are the ones that get hit uh, a lot of the times. Um, but it's, it strikes me as a very, you know, sort of risky uh, situation going into 2024, the sort of unknowns that are going to come from extreme weather. Yeah, I saw somebody be talking about El Nino being back this year after. Oh, yeah, uh, I did see that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm no meteorologist, Marcus, as you know, but at least people have said, people are saying. People, people are saying. People are saying that. Very strongly. Uh, El Nino's back very strongly. That El Nino is, is back and causing more extreme weather than we might otherwise see. Uh, so that, I'll add that to the, to the list of, of things to worry about. I got to put nuclear on the list. Of course you do. You know, we, we mentioned it mentioned it briefly with regard to Ukraine, Russia, but there's a broader story here about the erosion of the kind of international agreements that govern nuclear arms control and nuclear nonproliferation. And, you know, the United States has a couple of initiatives that threaten further erosion of these rules. So there is a, a kind of ongoing negotiation with Saudi Arabia about giving Saudi Arabia civilian nuclear power capabilities that would be widely seen as making it easier for Saudi Arabia to move toward a weapon. And that has a potential implication for nuclear proliferation and kind of keeping a lid on the number of countries that have nuclear weapons. 
At the same time, the U.S. and the U.K. have an initiative with Australia to provide them with nuclear submarines. And that is also a slap in the face of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which places restrictions on giving weapons-grade plutonium of the kind you would find in, in a nuclear submarine reactor to countries that don't have nuclear weapons. And, and so these stories are going to play out under the general context of the rapid erosion of arms control agreements between the U.S. and Russia, which we've seen Russia now back itself out of the comprehensive test ban treaty late last year. And so, you know, there aren't many agreements left to, to back out of. We basically come to the point where there are no real operative nuclear arms control agreements left. And that raises a lot of concerns about transparency and and the risk of unintended conflict between nuclear countries. So all of this is to say, you know, <laughs> this is another risk that we can look forward to in the year ahead without much prospect of, of bringing things back uh, under a more rational regime. Yeah, I, I, look, I mean, you're the nuclear guy. I, I don't disagree with anything uh, you said there. I mean, I think it's also just concerning that, you know, you have continued sort of efforts by the United States, Russia, China to develop bigger, better, more modernized weapons. I mean, if you're if you're American, you think, you know, OK, we need to have this um, modernized nuclear triad. That's that's great. But like, you know, there's a lot of risk there. There's, there's people are countries are still developing nuclear weapons. And so it's like the. the the issue of both the spread, the proliferation of them, but also just sort of the development of faster, more efficient, more advanced weapons that can kill lots of people. I mean, that's that's got to be a, a top concern on anybody's uh, list, I think, for, for 2024. Yeah. And just to tie this back to the overarching risk of the U.S. election coming up, the Trump administration's stance on NATO and its willingness to provide assurance to NATO partners NATO, NATO is a key part of U.S. nuclear deterrence policy. And if you imagine a U.S. administration that is cutting ties with its allies abroad, that is a strong incentive for those allies to seek their own nuclear deterrent. So we have countries out there that have nuclear weapons that would probably beef them up in the absence of a U.S. alliance. And we have countries that don't have nuclear weapons, like South Korea, that would probably seek them in the absence of U.S. assurances that it had its back in a conflict with a country like North Korea. So as we think about the potential impacts of a second Trump administration, the impact for nuclear proliferation is, is pretty potentially pretty stark. Yeah. You got anything else that you want to want to highlight as a, as a risk for 2024? The only other one, and it's, it's sort of a meta meta risk and it, it lots of things we've talked about uh, kind of uh, we've touched on this already, but I also just think the the sort of decline in global cooperation, the, um, Minimization of institutions, you know, I think this is tied to the U.S. election. I think it's certainly the case of Trump wins again. I, I would imagine U.S. Uh, you know, U.N. institutions, for example, uh, international cooperation more generally, treaties, international law, all of these things kind of kind of take a hit. But it's not just Trump. I mean, we've seen you know over the last uh, you know since COVID especially, but it's, it was happening before then. Sort of a, a, a sense in which the global like the sort of liberal order that got constructed after after the world war ii uh that that did a good job solving the world's problems um or a good enough job solving the world's problems that people wanted to participate in and strengthen the institutions has been viewed as sort of like inefficient uh or insufficient for uh dealing with what we deal with with now combined with a sort of you know identity politics that's kind of infiltrated the entire international system where it's like there's good guys and there's bad guys and it's either you know you're it's us or versus them which again a mindset that doesn't lead to a lot of cooperation and so i just worry about a sort of continued degradation of uh the institutions that were built to solve you know collective action problems not being used uh or being actively sort of you know destroyed or at least you know sort of uh have their hands tied or whatever that makes them less less useful I still think, I believe in the, the liberal international order. I think they're institutions, despite the fact that we've talked about how I don't think the United Nations is all that great in a lot of different ways, and they're, they're imperfect. Um, I do think there's value in having forum for states to pursue diplomacy with one another and share information. Things like the NPT, I think this is an important institution to have. And I just worry that we're seeing you know, slow, sometimes fast, kind of chipping away at, at global cooperation, uh, particularly when it comes to the relevance of these institutions. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, you know, this has been a not very uplifting set of items to consider, but I, th I think it is kind of interesting to think about what this list would have looked like had we, had we made this an annual thing every year for our podcast. Like yeah. in, in year one of this podcast, none of these things would have been on our list. 
as like a, a major risk. I would, have had, I would have had, or North Korea would be on the list. Okay, North Korea, yeah. But we've I mean, been talking like about the main ones. The main ones: Russia, Ukraine, Middle East conflict, yeah. AI. None of those would have been kind of our, no. our at the top of our our list of major global risks. And I think that just illustrates the extent to which we have no idea <laughs> what what's coming. Right? Like we shouldn't take this as a prediction about what what's going to happen in, in the year ahead. Well, it's also interesting. I mean, we we didn't talk about COVID or uh, global health at all, right? I mean, COVID would would have been number one. When we started this podcast, yeah, COVID would have been number one. And and if you had asked me, you know, two years ago, I would have said, yeah, that the sort of global health generally are we going to see more of these, you know, pathogens, more of these viruses. Um, again, that's another one that touches on a lot of different areas too, because there was a lack of global cooperation for a time with COVID and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it it was um, it's striking that just in the span of a couple of years, we've gone from sort of like something being the top risk to not even being on the list at all. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that's our fault. Maybe we should have had it on the list. Uh, well, right. I mean, maybe that's that, <laughs> taking our eye off the ball, right? <laughs> right uh, exactly. But yeah, that's, uh, it's an interesting, it's been an interesting turn in, in what we worry about in international relations over the last few years. Maybe, maybe next time on the pod, we can do our top 10 list of, of things to look forward to in 2024 from an international relations perspective. There you go. I like that. That'll be nice and nice. It'll be a 10 minute. This. It'll be a 10 minute. It'll be a short uh, episode, conversation, but. <laughs> Well, Marcus, maybe we should we should leave it there. Thank you for joining me today. Jeff, it's been a pleasure as always. And and again, I wish everybody listening, uh, even the people who aren't listening, I wish everybody a happy new year. Uh, and I hope everybody's doing well. If you would like to send us a note, um, you can do that at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. I will say we did get quite a lot of feedback on our um, discussion in the last episode about tying shoes. Oh, um, this generated quite some discussion. Um, maybe I'll even, let me share feedback. This from listener, Michael from Washington, DC, who wrote, just listen to the last 25 minutes of your last podcast. I might never forgive you for that time lost. Um, mm, so it's a little harsh, cool. harsh, but a little but disappointing, you, Michael, Michael. I, I will say I, uh, I feel that way often about after I finish recording the podcast. So I feel, I feel your pain, but just in our defense, Marcus, I will also read this note from listener, Brian from Albany, New York. He says, thank you for your discussion of shoelaces and shoe tying on your last podcast. Finally, I have an explanation for years of embarrassing tilted knots and laces coming untied at inopportune times. I feel I am now on the road to recovery. Keep up the good work. You know, I, I've, you, always, I, I've always <laughs> known that I like Brian from Albany. So, I, I knew let me, it. Let me just encourage everyone, send us your, uh, your hate mail and your kudos. We appreciate both cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Thanks to those who have supported the podcast by going to cheaptalk.shop. The shop remains open even though we are out of the holiday purchasing season. It is never a bad time to get yourself a Countries Are People hoodie. So check that out there. Folks, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Marcus. Thank you, Jeff. Apple announced the Vision Pro will be available for pre-orders January 19th. Yeah. Lindsay was asking me about that. She was like, people are really going to buy this at that yeah. price point? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to it's gonna sell out. So I, I think part of the problem is they don't have a lot of capacity to produce this thing. And all the rumors are that the, the screens in particular are in short supply. I think Sony is the manufacturer and has had trouble okay. um, manufacturing to these specs. So the rumors have been that this is going to be limited to you know, maybe less than a million units, which at Apple scale is very low. Right. What are they calling this thing? Apple Vision? Vision Pro. Vision Pro. Leaving room for the, the Vision non-pro, right? Which will be a cheaper product. The light, the light version. A Vision Light. Yeah, they usually just go, there's the Vision and there's the Vision Pro. There's the, you know, that was yeah. for a while, the MacBook and the MacBook Pro. Anyway, so the pre-order is open a week from Friday, January 19th. It goes, it ships February 2nd. And or it will be in customer hands February second, and that's also when Apple stores will be have units to demo. Okay, are are we recording? Are we recording? I'm recording because I want to. I want to go on the record right now, January 10th, the day that we're recording this. I think that this is going to be a complete flop. I think it's going to be a disaster for Apple. I think it's going to be a uh, now. To be fair, I also said the same thing about the iPad. So my track record with Apple and making predictions is not great. But I'm, I got to tell you, Jeff, I'm looking at this Apple Vision Pro, 
It looks clunky. It looks heavy. It doesn't look a whole lot different than my kid's Oculus. It's like this big piece of hardware. It's got a wire coming out of it. I don't know, man. I don't. I don't. I'm not feeling good about this. If I'm Apple, I'm, this is this is risky. Not to mention, like when I put the Oculus on, within like. 10 seconds, I'm nauseous. Like, I'm just like, there's too much stuff. And like, my system, my brain can't handle it. I think people are going to put this thing on. People are, you know, going to start having like headaches, blurred vision, uh, cross-eyed, the whole thing. I I just, we're going to start to see like horrendous stories coming out of the media about how this thing messes up everybody's vision, uh, your your inner ear balance. Like, it's just going to be a total nightmare. So it's going to be a flop. I'm on the record. It's a flop. I think it kind of depends on what, what would be a flop here? Because this is not a mass mar- market product, right? It's very clearly a step on the road to something else. And so I don't think it is intended to be the kind of thing that sells millions of units because they're not producing millions of units. It's intended to be the thing they can do now. And and I think part of the issue here is that, like, you know, you talk about n- nausea with with the with the Oculus, um, yeah. with the Quest, the MetaQuest now, right? But that's the the issue that Apple thinks it has solved by just putting higher end components in this thing, right? So the the screen should be better, the motion tracking should be better, and so it may be the groundwork for a future mass market pro- market product that comes in at a much lower price point because thirty five hundred dollars for this thing is a, is a lot, um, and so I think there are very few people who are going to be able to make that call. A lot of them will be developers or have kind of specialty uses for this. And then the next version will be the one that takes off. And so I think for from Apple's perspective, it, it it's not clear what a flop would be here, right? Like it, it probably will sell all the units it can produce, maybe not, but, but like it'll probably sell the small number of units it's making. And then the question is, does it generate enough momentum to lead to these future products that are going to be more mass market? I will tell you what a flop is. I will give you a very good analogy. I think this is uh, 3D television. I heard all of the same arguments when these everybody's talking about 3D. You're gonna have it's gonna be like in, in a movie theater. It's gonna be great. Oh yeah, yeah. These versions now stink because you have to get these glasses on, and those are clunky. But in the future, where they're gonna figure out technology, we don't need the glasses, and it's gonna be like really cool and everything. It never happened. It was a total joke. No one wants a 3D television. And those things were horrendously expensive at the beginning too. The argument was like, okay, not everybody's gonna buy these, but the, the technologies can get better and then they're gonna be mass market versions of it it was a flop because at the end of the day jeffrey people don't want 3d tv and i have the same feeling about this i don't think people want like a headset that makes them like part of a computer or in a computer or whatever this is supposed to be i think people like having their heads unencumbered to be able to like look at a screen and then look at something else and and you know like i i just don't think i just think that the 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 idea behind this thing the whole notion of it i just think is flawed and i don't think it fits with like the human experience uh our bodies i just i don't i don't and every other sort of like like sort of glasses or like other attempt to do something with your eyes has been a failure it's been a flop i mean they've been trying to do this for a long time in various like you know didn't nintendo have something like back in the 1980s oh they had the glove i guess that's slightly different but whatever i had a power glove i love the power glove yeah right and that was a, that was a that was a, a complete flop as well right well it's so no all- way <laughs> Love the Power Glove. I'm not saying the Power Glove and Apple Vision Pro are exactly the same <laughs> thing. But the point is, is that I just feel like these attempts to sort of, um, you know, bring you into these like immersive environments, particularly when it has to do with a headset, are just doomed to fail. Because I don't think people want that. Fundamentally, I don't think people want to be doing the things. I'm on I'm on AppleVisionPro.com or whatever, looking at the examples. That is not. Of the, the, well, that, no, that's not the website. Apple.com <laughs> slash Apple-Vision-Pro. And there's like somebody watching television with this thing on. It's 3D. Again, like no one wants 3D. 3D is totally overrated. Somebody looking at an Airbnb website and like can like scroll with their hand or whatever. All the, if that's your use case, Apple, like I can look at Airbnb and scroll with my hand like that. No, no one cares. No one wants that. What What is the thing? Okay, you're, you're, okay, you're you're pro Apple guy, right? So you can be answer this question for me. What is the thing that this would allow you to do that you want to do? Like, what can't you do right now, Jeff, that you're going to buy the Apple Vision Pro for $5,000 or whatever, put it on your head, and now you can do what? Illuminate me. What are you going to be doing with this thing that's so great? Yeah, well, I don't disagree with you at all. I, I, I think that this is, not, this is not the end state that anybody wants. 
But <laughs> but I actually think that it's really interesting. It will be interesting to see what happens with this product because what everybody wants is I'm wearing glasses right now. You're wearing glasses right now. We have very stylish Warby Parker glasses. And yes. what if in our field of view, it had a little writing reminding me of your name because I constantly forget. And you're walking down the street and your glasses are telling you make a right here. That's the dream, right? Everybody wants. No, I disagree. I don't want that. Oh, I do. I do. I can't remember anybody's name. I want my glasses to show me. I don't want, I don't want any typed. I don't want anything typed in my field oh, of vision. I do. I, do. I want that. Oh, I want, I want information. No. I want to know my directions. I want the script that I'm supposed to say when I forget what I'm supposed to say. I want all of that to appear yeah. just for me in front of my eyes with no one else seeing them, preferably on a contact lens, not even on glasses, <laughs> right? That's what I want. That's my, that's my future dream, uh. my sci-fi dream for myself. And I think we can see how that would be a valuable product, right? Like it's not hard to imagine use cases for a much less intrusive something that you wear on your face, right? Something that looks like what we currently wear on our face, both of us. So if that's the end goal, then we need to start developing the technology that's going to get us there. And I think Apple sees this as a step on the road, right? Now, whether it's an effective step on the road or a complete full start, this is a cul-de-sac or this is a road that leads somewhere, we don't know yet. And so it'll be very interesting. To I, see know. Once... I know. I know. I'm on record. I know. Well, let's see what you think when you try it. <laughs> I, so I, as you might imagine, have already requested my unit from our friends at uh, William and Mary. And so sure you, I'm sure I you have. have. And so the the process is the is rolling. And and so I think for you this this is actually kind of an interesting question because it, it's hard to see the mass market use for this product as it is now. But yes. there are kind of niche applications of something like this that friends of mine who are interested in international diplomacy might actually care about like could we imagine a use for ar vr augmented reality or virtual reality as a substitute for in-person summits we've talked about this before mm -hmm. on the podcast uh, militaries all over the world are very interested in the use of augmented reality and virtual reality for training purposes we've talked about this as well we talked about the use of virtual reality experiences as a public education tool to sensitize the public to international security threats like the risk of nuclear war we talked about that on this podcast so there are a number of international relations related use cases for a more advanced virtual reality augmented reality system than we've seen so far because the the MetaQuest, which is kind of the best mass market unit, is not great, right? Like, it really isn't. I, I, and so, I mean, I don't know how good you are at that ping pong game, Marcus, but, like, that's kind of the best that that has to offer. It's hard to imagine the Quest as a, a real telepresence kind of unit where you are feeling like you're in the room with somebody else effectively for long periods of time. But if Apple can deliver on its promises with this, this unit, which I have no, I haven't tried it, but people seem to be impressed by the demos they've had. If, if that really comes to, to reality, then that's a big deal for all kinds of industries and, and um, particularly for international security. Yeah. I, I, I think in, in very niche settings, I think the, the future, I can see a future world in which something along these lines, not this, contraption that looks horrendous and probably weighs 10 pounds on one's head. I don't think that's going to work. But like in, in, the, in the future, if there was something along these lines, uh, ideally with, with something you didn't have to wear, like you walked into like a room or a, a box or something like that, and it sort of did this sort of teleportation kind of idea, augmented reality, whatever. Yeah, I think that could be useful. And, I, and I, I'm a proponent of exploring that type of thing. My, my arguments are really just at this, this uh, Apple product. So I guess we're not, they're not going to be sponsoring us any longer, unfortunately. They're doing my diatribe here against them. Well, we'll see. When you, when you, make, a complete, when you make a complete 180 on this All right. after trying the unit, which I will just point out. I, well, I guess I will try it. I, I, I will try anything. Yeah, I will try it. Real-time fact check, Marcus. The thing weighs a pound. Oh, okay. One to one and a half pounds, I think, is the estimate. So, you know, I mean, not 10 pounds. Maybe it's uncomfortable for long periods of time. Yeah, a pound, a pound is still... It's, yeah, yeah, it still, seems heavy to me, right? That so seems like, heavy. Like, I wouldn't wear the, what is the Quest, like, two pounds? I wouldn't wear the, the Quest for a long time. No, are um, you going to watch a movie in the Quest? Yeah, it's no. uncomfortable. So, of I, I, But I'm interested to see what, yeah, I, I want to know, I want to try it out and see. I think putting one on your head will help you evaluate whether <laughs> this is the, the path forward for 
face-to-face diplomacy in the future. I really love their, you know, so they they have this thing called eyesight, which is also the thing on my Subaru Outback. But it says here, an an outward display reveals your eyes while wearing Apple Vision Pro, letting others know when you are using apps or fully immersed. Where didn't we talk about this like six months ago? Where have you been on on the? I, I, on I the think vision? we did. Well, you, I think you didn't watch any of the videos I sent you. you no, of course not. But you, you, uh, you asked me. I think in the con in the in the specific diplomacy context, in which I, I admit, yeah, just like, now you're like catching up on the future now, list. Now I'm realizing they're actually selling this to people like on the street, and I just think it's a total. I think it's a total. People flop. on the street I, who I, happen I, to be carrying thirty five hundred dollars in their pocket, right? So, I mean, but well, you know. somebody needs to explain economics to me because I don't understand how anybody can afford any of this stuff. But people are buying it left and right so clearly people are, are you know have money for this or, or credit or whatever but i just think that when the sales figures come out whatever their goals are for this product i i think they're going to be disappointed we might not know because they're not going to like tell us you know what their sort of targets were or whatever but i i just i can't imagine this thing takes off i'm sorry sorry apple sorry yeah and, and you, you may well be right and I, I guess i think we'll probably have some idea because there'll be some some rumor this is such a big enterprise there are always rumors coming out about how these things are doing but um, yeah it'll be interested to see interesting to see how it's received and you know i i think it would be a, a fun cheap talk field trip get you up to the apple store and try out a demo on this thing and see if that changes your tune at all well that grosses me out though because then you're putting a headset on that other people have put on i'm not <laughs> Exactly. I don't do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm against that. That's the same reason I, I think, if I'm being honest with you, <laughs> one of the reasons I think 3D in the theaters failed was because for a while they were like recycling the 3D glasses, and that's just gross. Now they figured out they just produce them really cheaply, but they come in their own little packets, and like that's better. But like this idea that you're going to use somebody's glasses that was just they're sitting there with their greasy fingers from the popcorn, and like you're going to put those on your face? No. Whenever I've gone to a 3D movie, uh, like we went to see like Jurassic World 3D, I, I don't even, I just keep the glasses off. Like I just watch it in the, the weird blurry blue and green, you know, red version. It's fine. It's not great, but it's fine. It's better than wearing the stupid glasses. I am so rarely impressed by 3D. Like every once in a while you'll go to like an attraction at Disney World or Universal Studios or something like that. And there'll be like an attraction that actually, like Rat- Ratatouille, the ride uh, in, in Disneyland is good. But, like, so many of them are just so crappy. And that's a technology that's been around forever. I mean, 3D is, I don't know Wikipedia, but 3D has been around for a long time. Well, when we were kids, there, were, there was 3D. Like, you would get oh, on yeah. those blue and red glasses. Exactly. And, and there was, like, some, I remember watching on, uh, you know, VHS tape, some, yeah. like, like monster flick that was right. I mean, like, like things come out you and, and yeah. out you. But that's my point. Like the technology like hasn't advanced. Like it was just as good in 1985 as it is now. Like you still have to put the dopey glasses on. It's still kind of like mediocre like content. It still makes people kind of sick. It's just that has it. It never went anywhere, and it's like dying a slow death. I think, and so I, I just kind of feel like these headsets for the commercial use is probably like going to follow a similar trajectory. Like a lot of hype for a while. Oh yeah, technology is going to get better. It's going to get smaller. Uh, uh, you know, at some point you run into the laws of physics, right? If it's going to go over your eyes and it completely encapsulate like your whole like you know. Uh, uh, vision system in your head and your brain, it, you have to wear it, right? And so, like, that's going to be clunky no matter what you do, it seems to me, right? So, like, I, I just think that there's, there are, like, physical limitations as to what these devices are going to be able to do. Anyway, we've spent enough time trashing Apple, at least I have. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that we should probably try it before we continue this conversation. Yeah, that's fine. But let me give you one more use case, which is what I would pay sure. $3,500 for. Okay. What if... I could attend sporting events through the Vision Pro, be in a seat in a stadium, feel like I was at the at the basketball game or the football game or the hockey okay. game. Okay. Turn my head and see whatever I want to see in the field of view, not be limited to the the camera angle that was chosen for me by, you know, NBC Sports or whatever, and kind of hear the crowd around me, behind me. I think, or go to concerts is the other I one was that just kind of jumps say, to mind. Yeah, that's like a different experience in person in concerts and sporting events. If you had, if you had like really good audio, right? Like, and it was, it really sounded like you were at the concert and you could kind of hear the like other people like next to you, you know, you could smell the like pot or whatever. And, and you have Dave Matthews like up there, like playing two steps. As soon as you mentioned pot, you were going to the Dave Matthews route. <laughs> or a fish concert or something. Like, I, I, that, I, I grant you, like, if they could come up with it. Now, if that's where Apple's going, I retract all of my comments, right? <laughs> if they deliver, if they deliver something that allow me to go to Dave Matthews concert, like live, like while it's happening, 
You know, it's sort of like Peloton. Like, you can, like, pull up, like, these, like, classes, but, like, you know, whenever you want because they're recorded. But if you could do, like, a live kind of thing where you're, like, watching the concert with other people who are there live in person and feel like you're part of that experience, that to me is a game changer. So if that's – and I will I will, I will, will 100% admit that was wrong. I will write a letter of apology to Apple. Like, that will be that will be the thing that, that sells me on this. Sporting events, yeah. But, but the concert – that to me is like the winner. I think if you can pull that off, Jeff, then, then you're onto something. I'll just throw out there that Apple a few years ago acquired a company that does this, that it's, it was called, I think, Next VR. Hmm. And it, it was it was focused on like creating these VR experiences for live events. So concerts and sports uh, events where they like set up this rig like at the concert. Yeah. And it like records all around and audio and video. And then they transfer that into something that you could like use in a, in a headset. Um, and I don't know. I have no idea whether that's a, a thing that took off or whether they just bought the talent and, you know, nothing ever came of it. But people are talking about this as a potential killer app for something like the Vision Pro. You know, now that you mention it, we've talked about treadmills quite often on this on this mm-hmm. show before. Well, what if I another put, one, right? You know, what if I could put the headset on and go for a run in Central Park, right? Yeah, like I could go for a run in 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 wherever San Francisco. I want to go across the Golden Gate Bridge, right? All right, now you're starting to to do something that I could I could see myself being interested in, right? So, like again, it's not looking at Airbnb.com and swiping with your hand. Like we're, we're we need to get like you know further down the road. But like if we're if we're starting to enter those types of territories uh, for like entertainment. Physical activity, like I could see, I could see maybe this working. I could see maybe this working, but I think we're a long way away from that. Yeah, who's I think, running, I think you're who's right. running with a thing on their head, right? I mean, well, you for know. The, from the fitness perspective, I think Apple. It was very interesting that because people had kind of speculated that fitness was going to be one of the pillars of this device because the Apple Watch has fitness as like one of its main sure. use case, and Heart so people and thought, stuff. well, this is an obvious kind of spinoff of that. And Apple, I like, didn't mention fitness at all in its mm. in introduction to this and in the videos or any of the presentations. And so I, part of the issue here is like the thing is heavy. The thing mm-hmm. is plugged in. So it's plugged into a, like a battery pack that you put in your pocket. But like, you don't want to run with that. And no. so I, I think for that reason, they're kind of th- th- this version of it is maybe not capable of, of being a good fitness accessory, but that maybe like the next version that's lighter and that has a longer battery life. It doesn't need to be plugged into an external battery pack. Like maybe that will be the one that they market as part of their fitness plus service or, or whatever. So they're, they're, it would be interesting. Like I think running right now with it, it would be tough. Maybe biking with a stationary bike would be a little better because you're not a little like, better. I was also I thinking like liability. I mean, like run, you mentioned running on a treadmill with this thing on your head and like you well, get you like disoriented. See, it, what, yeah, if you can't see the treadmill. That's super dangerous. Like, exactly. Like you, you put your foot on the side thing. of it, you fly off of it. Yeah. I mean, that'd be long. I mean, that, did Peloton like they created a treadmill that like a couple of people died on it or something like that? And like I'm not even sure if it exists anymore. Right, and they, and they didn't have anything over their face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's a it's a yeah. So I think the Apple is like kind of maybe rightly not making that the the main use case here but i bet that somebody's going to write apps fitness related apps for this thing that that uh yeah i mean i'm sure i'm sure but yeah all right well it remains to be seen well uh, i'll withhold judgment for now well as soon as i get mine from william mary i will let um, me know i will let you know we we can we can try it out this would be great i'll disinfect it and then i'll put it on 